we will begin. Heavenly Father, thank you this evening for our time together again, and thank you for watching over us, caring for us. Do pray for those that we know who have gotten the virus, the Castle family. Thank you for uh, the fact that they have um, been able to come through this successfully so far. Pray you'll continue to give healing to them and others who we may have heard about and, and some I've known that uh, have contracted the virus. Pray that uh, they'll be able to get the proper medical care and attention. <clears throat> Thank you for uh, your providential care and all of this and for the vaccine that looks very promising. We pray that this will be able to be distributed soon and uh, we can get through this period. And especially for our church, we can be back together meeting in our normal fashion. Help us tonight as we look at these matters uh, related to the Testaments and to books that uh, were very popular and uh, still are in many circles, but not actually part of your word. We want to study that and understand that. So we ask you'll help us and direct us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at um, lesson 11 here, and we're looking at the literature of the intertestamental period. We've looked at the Septuagint. The Dead Sea Scrolls is really the Bible we were looking at, the preserved Bible, very old manuscripts that were discovered in the 40s. And uh, I don't know what that uh, slide is doing there. Let's see. Well, we'll just, uh, <laughs> uh, I guess I got that out of order. Let's look at uh, the Old Testament Apocrypha tonight. First of all, I want to talk about the term itself, the meaning and use of the term Apocrypha. It's from a Greek word that or has the idea really of hidden or concealed. Uh, that's not what we mean when we talk about the Apocrypha uh, as literature today, these books of the Apocrypha, we're not, but that's the origin of the word. And it came to be used in the sense of false uh, over time, much like we speak of an apocryphal story. Somebody tells a story and it seems wild and impossible. We say, is that apocryphal or just made up, you know, or something. And so it's, it's just something that's false and ultimately came to be used in the sense of non-canonical, not in the canon. That's how the reformers use the term and that's how we Protestants speak of it today. The day, uh, the Apocrypha refers to a group of 15 books related to the canonical 39 Old Testament books. Notice I said related, that is they are talking about discussing people and subjects in the Old Testament. So they're dealing with Old Testament material, but which were judged by both Jews and the early church not to be inspired and thus rejected as part of the Old Testament. Now remember that Jewish part we'll mention again, and that's a very important one. These books were written by Jewish people for Jews but Jews never thought of them as scripture. They never included them in the canon of their Old Testament. Uh, though not viewed as scripture, inspired scripture, these religious works were thought to have spiritual value by some in the church, and thus were sometimes included in copies of the Bible. 
Now here we're talking about <clears throat> hand copying in the early few centuries. Uh, remember we talked about that the church was the first to use, Christians were the first to use what's called the codex form of the book uh, with, you know, bound here on the end rather than the scroll. And so um, in some of the bound copies, uh, we find some uh, apocryphal books bound there in those copies. Uh, and then, <clears throat> as we'll talk about, uh, it came to be used, uh, came, it came into the English Bibles. Uh, the Old and New Testaments were translated into Latin around the year 400 by Jerome, the greatest scholar of his day. So remember we said that the, the Bible of the early church was the Septuagint in the Old Testament. That is most Jews and certainly Gentiles particularly, and most, the church was mainly a Gentile church. They couldn't read the Hebrew Old Testament. They needed a translation like we do. And so the Septuagint, the Greek translation, was what they used. And that was in the first century, in the time of Paul, in the second century, the third. But eventually, Latin won out in the West, in the Western part of Europe, Western Europe, Latin became dominant <clears throat> and people spoke Latin and wrote Latin. And they did that for more than a thousand years. Um, I was just reading about uh, Charles, uh, Charles Wesley, John Wesley's brother, the famous hymn writer. And when he went to school, he went to a school in England as a young man and, and everything was in Latin. Everything was taught in Latin. That was true in America, the Boston Latin School. I mean, there was just, Latin was the scholarly language and people wrote and spoke in Latin for a long time. And so uh, the Bible was translated into, um, now there's some question about, did he, did he translate or somebody else, trans I said he also translated the Apocrypha, but if you see some discussions, they say he didn't really translate the Apocrypha, but some people did. And, and eventually we know that the translation he made, it's called the Vulgate, uh, which means common or everyday, uh, that translation eventually over the centuries, fifth century, sixth century, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, came to include the apocryphal books in the Latin Vulgate. But subsequent copyists did not include Jones, Jerome's prefaces and the apocrypha gradually was viewed as scripture, though not officially so. Um, the, um, Jerome and the original Vulgate had prefaces or introductions that indicated these books are not inspired scripture. <clears throat> but over the years, those, those were not included. And uh, so eventually these books just became incorporated in the Vulgate without a lot of distinction. Now, distinguishing between the Apocrypha from the inspired scripture was not deemed important in the Middle Ages since the Roman Catholic Church does not believe in sola scriptura. So there's the important point. Um, here's the Latin Vulgate, the Bible, the only Bible that was around in those years, in the dark ages, right up to the Reformation time, the 1500s. 
the only Bible around, particularly, was the Latin Vulgate. That's what anybody who went to school in Europe studied Latin, knew Latin, spoke Latin, read their Bible in Latin. And uh, the Roman Catholic Church wasn't particularly concerned about defining a particular Bible like we are. We, we Protestants want to know, okay, what we believe in God, Scripture is the ultimate and final authority. So we got to know what Scripture is. It's not true in the Roman Catholic Church. Scripture is not the final authority. The church is the final authority. So there's the magisterium of the church. There's tradition and Scripture. Tradition and Scripture. And the church is over and they take what's true and what's not true. So the Roman Catholic Church was not particularly concerned about trying to distinguish between. Uh, the Reformation emphatically rejected uh, the Apocrypha um, as scripture because they were interested in, you know, what, what is, <laughs> our final authority is not the church, our final authority is scripture up here, scripture, sola scriptura. So we got to know what scripture is. And so uh, the Reformation churches rejected the Apocrypha as scripture. But they didn't reject the Apocrypha, you know, as the work of the devil or something, as, you know, you can't read that. It's just the work of the devil It's and all that kind of stuff. No, the, 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 they saw the Apocrypha as having religious value. That's important to remember. This is religious scripture. This is religious scripture that people think, believe has some value. Even Protestants think it has some value. We had been taught, we talked a lot about the intertestamental history, and we got a lot of that from Josephus, but we got a lot of it from First and Second Maccabees, books in the Apocrypha that talk about the Maccabean revolt. We wouldn't know as much if we didn't have those books. So uh, these books have some valuable material, and they have uh, material that's true to scripture. It's, it's uh, spiritual stuff not inspired. It's just like us. We read all kinds of books. I mean, if you go to our, to the ministry center, you'll find a lot of books on the shelf there that we recommend. We don't recommend every single word and every single sentence. They're not inspired scripture, but it's good religious literature. A lot of good things are written there. We don't think it's inspired, but it's valuable. And so this is how the Apocrypha was looked at, even by the Reformation churches. So here's Luther. Here's when he translated his Bible into German. Luther starts the Reformation in 1537. He translates the New Testament early, but then works on the Old Testament and the Apocrypha. And he says in the title, the Apocrypha, that is the books which are not to be esteemed like holy scriptures, and yet which are useful and good to read. So he came out of the Catholic. He was, you know, obviously the Catholic Church, and he knew the Apocrypha, but he realized they're not scripture, but they still have some value. Uh, if we look at the history of the English Bible for just a second here, uh, the, the first translation of the Bible in the English was by William Tyndall, 1526. He translated the New Testament and started working on the Old Testament, but was burned at the stake and, of course, never finished that. But his disciple, Coverdale produced a Bible uh, in 1535, and another one of Tyndall's disciples, Matthew, another Bible in 1537. They copied Tyndall's work and worked on the Old Testament. And then the first Bible 
that the church, the, the, the church of England authorized to be read in the church, the great Bible, 1539, it had the, all these Bibles had the Apocrypha. Even the Geneva Bible, the Geneva Bible was produced under John Calvin's ministry in Geneva. Even the Geneva Bible had the Apocrypha, though these people were adamant against the Roman Catholic Church and they didn't accept the Apocrypha scripture. The second Bible authorized in the Church of England, the Bishop's Bible, had the Apocrypha and the King James Version had the Apocrypha. Now, the Church of England is, you know, it's a difficult church to pin down. It's, uh, it's got high church people and low church is how it's common. High church people are more Roman Catholic-like and low church people are more evangelical. So over the years in the Roman Catholic and the Church of England, you've had evangelical people, very evangelical like us, J.I. Packer, who died recently. J.I. Packer, famous Anglican guy, written a lot of books, <laughs> probably read some of them. Uh, so, uh, you know, so a, a, lot of, a lot of important books, Knowing God and so forth. Um, but um, you've got those people, and then you've got these high church people. So you've got these different traditions. The Church of England uh, is kind of a mixed bag there. If you look at their articles of confession of faith, they are evangelical, but there's a lot of uh, people in there who are more concerned about ceremonies and rituals and uh, more Roman Catholic-like. So here's the Coverdale Bible. The, here's the Apocrypha, the books and treaties which are which among the fathers of old are not reckoned to be of like authority with other books of the Bible, neither are they found in the canon of Scripture. So all these Bibles had the Apocrypha. Uh, they, they translated it because it was in, that, that was the tradition of Bible translation in the Latin Vulgate. That's what the Roman Catholic Church had. The Church of England was, uh, as I say, uh, came out of the Roman Catholic Church and never fully broke from Roman Catholic tradition, even to this day, never did. Uh, it went back and forth, depending on who the king was. The Geneva Bible, 1560, was produced by Protestants who had fled England when Bloody Mary came to the throne. And uh, they, were very, they were under John Calvin's ministry, and they produced a Bible, very good Bible, the Geneva Bible was the Bible that the Puritans took to New England at Plymouth. And when they founded Plymouth Plantation, they brought the Geneva Bible. They wouldn't allow a copy of the King James on board the Mayflower in 1620. They would only allow the Geneva Bible. They hated anything that spoke of kings or churches or big churches like that, you know, Church of England. But they say in their Bible, the books that follow in order after the prophets under the New Testament are called Apocrypha. That is, books which were not received by a common consent to be read and expounded publicly in the church, neither yet served to prove any point of Christian religion, save in so much as they had the consent of other scriptures called canonical to confirm the same, or rather whereupon they were grounded, but as books proceeding from godly men, they were received to be read for the advancement and furtherance of the knowledge of history and for the instruction of godly manners, which books declare that at all times, God had a, a special care of his church 
and left them not utterly destitute of teachers and means to confirm them in order uh, confirm them in the hope of the promised Messiah, and also witness that those calamities that God sent to his church were according to his providence, who had both so threatened by his prophets and so brought it to pass for the destruction of their enemies and for the trial of his children. So even this very Protestant Bible still kept the apocryphal books in there. And here's the King James, 1611, Old Testament. I guess we're jumping here today with a thing. Uh, Old Testament and uh, New Testament, but in the middle, the books, the Apocrypha, first Ezra, second Ezra, Tobit, Judith, the rest of Esther, and so forth. So uh, there it is. And uh, let's take a look then uh, at the books of the Apocrypha. So we've got 15 books, and I say in the note, in some listings, the letter of Jeremiah is incorporated into Baruch number eight and nine are combined. So you have 14. So 14 or 15. First Ezra, second Ezra, Tobit, Judith, addition to the wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, that's not Ecclesiastes, though it's really the same word, the church book. It's also called Sirach. So sometimes it's abbreviated ECC. Sometimes it's abbreviated SIR. It's the wisdom of Ben Sirach is the full name. Uh, the wisdom of Ben Sirach, Jesus, son of Ben, son of Sirach. So it's called Sirach quite a bit, and I'll call it that some, maybe SIR period. And then we'll talk about these other books. We mentioned first and second Maccabees, which are historical books telling about the Maccabean revolt and so forth. Well, I say B, in 1546, in response to the Reformation churches, so the Reformation had come along and said, these Roman Catholic doctrines like the mass and purgatory and praying for the dead, there is no basis in scripture for these things. Well, they didn't have to worry about that before the Protestant Reformation. They didn't need any basis in scripture, and they still don't. <laughs> but, you know, they were getting a lot of criticism, you know. So the Roman Catholic Church comes along and says, well, 12 of these 15 are canonical. They rejected three of them. And, and the reason they accepted them, as we'll see, they contain some verses that are very helpful for the Roman Catholic false doctrine of salvation by works, of praying for the dead, of all kinds of things that the Roman Catholic Church teaches falsely. So they, they accepted those as canonical. They give them a kind of a secondary canonical, deuterocanonical, but still scripture and so forth. And so sometimes they'll use the term apocrypha to apply to these as well as what we call the pseudepigrapha, which we'll talk about later and distinguish between what's the difference between apocrypha and pseudepigrapha writings and so forth. So if you look at the size of the Apocrypha, you can see <clears throat> that it's fairly good size, not as large as the New Testament, but 152,000 words versus 181,000 from the King James statistics. So it's a pretty good body of literature. What about the language of the Apocrypha? Well, most of the books were written in Greek, except for a few in Hebrew like the book Sirach we talked about 
probably some in Aramaic, maybe Tobit and so forth. Copies of Tobit, Syriac, and Letter of Jeremiah have been found at Qumran. So the Essenes at Qumran, <clears throat> they had scrolls. They didn't have the codex. So they found scrolls of Tobit, scroll, scroll of Ecclesiastica, Syriac, scrolls of the Letter of Jeremiah. They found those three books among the Jews at uh, Qumran. Who were the authors of the Apocrypha? Now, let me just say a little bit about the information I'm giving you. The information I'm giving you is not something I have ex uh, exhausted or studied exhaustively or researched exhaustively. When I tell you something about the New Testament, you know, when I tell you that 1 Corinthians was written by Paul from Ephesus in AD 55, I'm pretty certain of that. You know, I know where Paul went on his journeys. I know he was in Corinth in between 50 and 52 because I know Gallio. I mean, I know a lot of stuff about that. But most of us in the Protestant, <laughs> you know, fields, we don't spend our lifetimes studying these apocryphal books. So I'm taking this from people who have studied it, and they're not necessarily all evangelical. So, but it's pretty. I think it's pretty accurate. I think. I think it's, everything we see here is generally accurate, but. I haven't exhaustively documented and studied every bit of or verified everything that I'm going to say here. This is the general accepted opinion, a lot from Catholic scholars who, of course, have spent the most time studying these things, although Protestants have too. But they think that most of the writers were Palestinian Jews, with the exception of 2 Maccabees, the Wisdom of Solomon, probably Alexandrian. Now, they get that from the expressions they use, what they talk about places and so forth. The identity of the authors is unknown except for the book Ecclesiasticus, which says was written by Jesus, the son of Sirach. Now, Jesus is the Greek way to spell Joshua, the Hebrew Joshua, uh, Jehovah saves or Yahweh saves, uh, Joshua, the son of Sirach, or in Greek, Jesus, the son of Sirach. So it's called Ben. Ben is the Hebrew word for son. Ben Sirach, often Ben Sirach, son of Sirach. Sirach, or Ecclesiasticus, is this other name. It's a little confusing because we think of Ecclesiastes, which is a, of course, a book by Solomon in the Old Testament canon. Well, when were these books written? They probably written mostly uh, from around 200 B.C., around there to 50 BC in the intertestamental period. They were all written before the time of Christ, except for second Esdras, which we know was written in the first century AD because of what it describes, what it talks about the fall of Jerusalem and things like that. But most are really intertestamental. Second Esdras is not uh, technically a uh, intertestamental uh, book. Um, what are the types of literature we find? Well, we find uh, similar literature to what we find in the Old Testament. We find historical, like we have the historical books, Joshua, Judges, and First and Second Samuel. Well, we have that in First Esdras. I'll, I'll just go ahead and say Esdras is the Greek spelling of Ezra. So Esdras is Ezra, First Ezra. It's just the Greek way to say uh, Ezra. So 1st Ezra, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, these are more historical books like our historical books in the Old Testament. 
There's wisdom literature, like we have Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, you know. Well, there's Ecclesiasticus, Ben Sirach, and Wisdom of Solomon. Religious romance, this is how it's commonly called, Tobit and Judith. It's something like Ruth. You might say Ruth is, I don't know if you want to say religious romance, but, you know, there is a little romance in Ruth <laughs> and religion and so forth. So it's, you know, kind of like Ruth in some ways. Uh, apocalyptic. Apocalyptic is a term used to describe a book that has visions and, and uh, you know, symbolic, a lot of uh, things like that. Uh, Second Esdras, you know, some things like we see in the book of Revelation. Prophetic books, of course, we have all kinds of prophetic books in the Old Testament, and we have Baruch, the letter of Jeremiah. Now, I, you know, just say these, this is not written by Jeremiah. One of the common things that ancient, we see in the ancient world, and this continues intertestamental period, it goes right through the early church, right through the first few centuries, right to the Middle Ages, is that people, in order to get a hearing for their book, would claim that they, that some ancient writer wrote it. So you've got the Gospel of Peter, and then, you know, we, there's New Testament Apocrypha, too, that we're not talking about. Books written after the New Testament that claim to be written by New Testament writers, the Gospel of Paul, the Gospel of Peter, all kinds of things like that, Gospel of Thomas. Well, this one is, you know, claims to be a letter of Jeremiah, but it's not really. Then there are legendary additions to the Old Testament, additions to Esther, the prayer of Azariah, the song of three young men, Susanna, Bell and the Dragon, and the prayer of Manasseh. And we'll talk about some of these. I want to talk about three particular books as we have time, Tobit and uh, additions to Esther, uh, uh, additions to Daniel, particularly Susanna and Bell and the Dragon. Though I'll mention the Song of the Three Young Men, Prayer of Azariah. So that's the kind of literature we have. Let's kind of survey a few of these books and then we'll talk tonight about Tobit quite a bit. Uh, so first Ezra, as we said, Ezra is the Greek form of Ezra, sometimes called the Greek Ezra to distinguish from the Hebrew Ezra Ezra, which is the canonical one, you know. So if you look at manuscripts later on, later Christian copies of the Septuagint, it was entitled first Ezra, while second Ezra was the canonical Ezra Nehemiah. And the Vulgate is titled third Ezra. And so it's, you know, different names probably written around 150 BC is the general thought. It's really only a translation of the Hebrew text of Ezra and parts of a Nehemiah and Second Chronicles, along with an addition in the 3, 1 through 5, 6, the story of the three young guardsmen in the court of Darius. So if you look at, you know, how it's set up there, it's really mostly scripture. Starts off with Second Chronicles 35, 36, has Ezra chapter 1, Ezra chapter 4, through, 4, 7 through 24. Then this apocryphal story, <laughs> story of the three guardsmen, Ezra, then keep on, and then Nehemiah. So it's just kind of a thing like that. This uh, story of the three guardsmen, I just summarized here. There was a contest among the three to determine the strongest thing in the world. The first suggested wine, the second said the king, and the third said women, but added that truth was really the strongest. So Darius had this contest 
among these three guys, uh, find out who's the smartest, who's the wisest. And Darius picked the third, the guy who said women are the strongest, but truth is really stronger. <laughs> and Darius picks him and he's identified as a rebel and rewards him by authorizing him to build a temple. Now, what we see here in this story is a very common thing in the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha has a lot of stories to uh, give us additional details about the lives of these famous people in the Old Testament, like Zerubbabel. And we don't know anything about his background, where he came, you know, how did he get to this prominent position? So this is a story to say, you know, this guy's really a smart guy, and, and Darius recognized this, and, and so forth. There's all kinds of ones about Daniel, as we'll see, which is both Susanna and Bell and the Dragon are both stories to enhance and explain Daniel's rise and reputation and so forth. You've got the same thing in the post-New Testament period. There are gospels, infancy gospels written about the infancy of Jesus that tell us stories about Jesus as a young boy, how he was in his father's carpenter shop one day and he made a wooden bird, and then he just miraculously turned into a real bird and it flew away. So people made up all kinds of stories, and here's one that was made up here about Zerubbabel. Second Ezra, as we said, is that book that uh, sometimes called Ezra the Prophet, Apocalypse, thought to be the work of several authors. <clears throat> That's what a lot of scholars say. It's the only apocalypse that has these revelations where the seer is instructed by an angel, Uriel, concerning some of the great mysteries of the moral world, depicts Jewish despair and bewilderment following the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, probably most of it written after AD 70. Now, what we also find in the Apocrypha is a lot of emphasis on angels, especially archangels. And so we see a lot of angels identified as archangels in the apocryphal books. Now, I want to talk about Tobit and discuss that some tonight. Thought we'd kind of look through it, kind of see the story of it. Thought to be written about 180 BC. And here's a kind of a map showing some of the places, if you've read it, Nineveh here and Ecbatana, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Here's Rajis, Rajis where uh, we find Tobit and, and characters going to here, uh, Tobias. So here's, here's a location right here and Nineveh and so forth and of course Israel and this is dealing of course with the captivity um, when um, Israel the northern tribes were taken captive let me um, uh, share a different screen here for a second and uh, we'll look at Tobit so Tobit, as I say here, is the story of Tobit, who is the son of Tobiel, son of Haniel, son of Aduel, son of Gabiel, so forth. Uh, he's of the tribe of Naphtali, one of the 10 northern tribes, who in the days of King Sha uh, uh, Shalmaneser of the Assyrians was taken into captivity. So here's a guy, very pious, very good Jewish man, who's, in, who's uh, taken captive uh, by the Assyrians. Uh, it talks here first about his youth and his virtuous life. 
He was very virtuous. Uh, he walked in the ways of truth and righteousness all the days of his life. He's explaining this. Tobit is saying this. Performed acts of charity for my kindred, my people who had gone with me to exile in Nineveh and the land of the Assyrians. When I was back in Israel, he said, while I was a young man, the whole tribe of my ancestor in Ephraim deserted the house of David and Jerusalem. Remember, we talked about this in the history that Sartre Solomon, uh, the 10 northern tribes broke off and departed from uh, Judah and they went into apostasy. He says, Tobit says, uh, all of my kindred here in verse five and our ancestral house of Naphtali sacrificed to the calf that King Jeroboam of Israel had erected in Dan and on all the mountains of Galilee. But I alone went to Jerusalem for the festivals. Remember the Jews, Jewish men especially, were had to go to Jerusalem for Passover, for Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Those three feasts were required to go each year as described for all Israel by the everlasting decree, the law of Moses. I would hurry off to Jerusalem with the first fruits of the crops, firstling of the flock, tithes of the cattle and so forth. I would give these to the priest. He said a third, uh, a third, he would give various tents, he says, a second tent, and a third tent, the orphans and widows. So he was a very pious, very godly man as he's being described here, Jewish man. When he became a man, I married a woman, a member of our own family, and by her became the father of a son by whom I named Tobias. Well, now he talks about how he's taken into captivity. I was carried away <clears throat> to Assyria, came as a captive to Nineveh. Every one of my kindred and my people ate the food of the Gentiles. Remember, Jews had their own food and still do. Kosher, Orthodox Jews, kosher food. They don't eat uh, pork and so forth, and they have to prepare their meat a certain way. But he says, I kept myself from eating the food of the Gentiles because I was mindful of God with my heart. The Most High gave me favor and good standing with Shalmaneser. And I used to buy everything he needed. Until his death, I used to go to Media and buy for him there. While in the country of Media, I had left bags of silver worth. So, so Tobit was an official, obviously, with the king and had some position uh, uh, buying and, and so forth. So he had some, uh, some good job there. But while he was in the country of Media, uh, I left bags of silver worth 10 talents in the trust of Gabriel, the brother of Gabri. Now, this will come up later, these talents, you may if you've read it. But when the Shalmaneser died and his son Sennacherib reigned in his place, the highways and the media came unsafe and I couldn't go there. So he got this money, but it's put in trust in another location. He continues to talk about his piety, <clears throat> his godliness, his following the law. In the days of Shalmaneser, I performed many acts of charity to my kindred, those of my tribe. I'd give food to the hungry, clothing. If I saw a dead body in any, uh, among any of the people I'd thrown out behind the wall of Nineveh, I'd bury it. I also buried any whom King Sennacherib put to death when he became fleeing from Judea in those days of the judgment that the king of heaven executed upon him because of his blasphemies. Remember, Sennacherib was defeated there trying to defeat Hezekiah. For in his anger, he put to death many Israelites, and I would secretly remove the bodies and bury them. So Sennacherib looked for them. He couldn't find them. Then one of the Ninevites went and informed the king and I was, that I was burying them, and I hid myself. I realized the king knew about me. I was being searched for to be put to death. I was afraid and ran away. 
Then all my property was confiscated. Nothing was left to me that was not taken in the royal treasury except my wife and my son Tobias. But not 40 days passed before two of Sennacherib's sons killed him. His son Ezrahaddon reigned, and he appointed uh, Ahakar, Ahakar, the son of my brother uh, Haniel, over all the accounts of the kingdom, and he had authority over the entire administration. And Ahakar interceded, interceded for me, and I returned to Nineveh. Uh, so he got, he got back to Nineveh. Chapter 2, it was during the reign of Ezrahaddon, I returned home, and my wife and Anna and my son Tobias were destroyed to me, were, were restored to me. And I I'll skip some of this here about the story. The important thing we have to remember is how he became blind. Uh, he said, that same night I washed myself and went into my courtyard and slept by the wall of the courtyard. I'm not sure why he did that. <clears throat> he went out, it was, he was burying the dead, but then he came and ate with his family. So, but anyway, some impurity, I guess, uncleanness. And uh, my face was uncovered because of the heat. I did not know that there were sparrows on the wall. Their fresh droppings fell into my eyes and produced white films. I went to the physicians to be healed, but the more they treated me with, with, with ointments, the more my vision was obscured by white films until I became completely blind. For four years, I remained unable to see. So that leaves him in quite a predicament, you know, financial-wise and otherwise. So Tobias' wife has to kind of earn their livelihood. So his wife, Anna, earned money at women's work. She used to send what she made to the owners, and they would pay wages to her and so forth. And he talks about another incident here with a goat. And then he's very depressed, as you might imagine, and so he prays to the Lord, began to pray, but he says, you're righteous, O Lord, and so forth. But down at the end, he says, it's better for me to die than to live because I've had to listen to undeserved insults and great is the sorrow with me, within me. Command, O Lord, that I be released from this distress. Release me to go to the eternal home. And do not, O Lord, turn your face away from me, for it's better for me to die than to see so much distress in my life and to listen to insults. Well, this prayer for death, of course, then sets up the next scene in a similar situation with his kinswoman, Sarah, uh, who um, is in Ekbatana in Media. On this very same day that apparently he's praying this, it also happened that Sarah, the daughter of Raguel, was reproached by one of her father's maids, for she had been married to seven husbands and the wicked demon Asmodeus had killed each of them before they had been with her as is customary for wives. So, you know, on the wedding night, uh, this demon killed all of her husbands, seven husbands. She had, had been married seven times, but the marriage was never consummated. So the maid said to her, you are the one who kills your husbands. See, you've already been married to seven husbands and have not borne the name of a single one of them. So, you know, they accuse her of uh, killing her husband on the wedding night. Well, then she prays for death. On that day, she was grieved in spirit and wept. And when she had gone up to her father's upper room, she intended to hang herself. She says, better 
for me not to hang myself, but to pray to the Lord that I may die and not listen to these reproaches anymore. The same time with the hands outstretched toward the window, she prayed. She said, you know, O master, that I'm innocent of any defilement with a man. So she's not repenting here of any sin because she says, I haven't, I haven't committed any sin here. But it is not, if it's not pleasing to you, O Lord, to take my life, hear me in my disgrace. <clears throat> well, then we get the answer to prayer. At that very moment, the prayers of both of them were heard in the glorious presence of God. So Raphael was sent to heal both of them. And now <laughs> we find out the sort of the end of the story. <laughs> it seems a little strange to me, but <laughs> the author here tells us what's going to happen. I guess so we won't be in suspense or something. I don't know. We were told what the outcome is before it acts, before we get the story about it. So Raphael, now Raphael, as we'll learn, is an angel. And Raphael is the, this is the first mention of Raphael, but he's mentioned a lot in Jewish literature. And he's considered one of the archangels in Jewish literature. There's Michael. Michael is the only angel in the Bible called an archangel, though many suspect Gabriel is. But here's Raphael. There's actually seven archangels in Jewish sort of literature. <clears throat> but Raphael and, uh, is one of the angels in, in Jewish thinking. Uh, they say that when Abraham was visited by the angels, Raphael was one of those angels. So here's Raphael again, an archangel. So Raphael is sent by God to heal both of them. Tobit, by removing the white film from his eyes so that he might see God's light, see God's light with his eyes, and Sarah, daughter of Raguel, by giving her in marriage to Tobias, son of Tobit, and by setting her free from the wicked demon Osmodeus. For Tobias was entitled to have her before all others who had desired to marry her. At the same time that Tobit returned from the courtyard into his house, Sarah, daughter of Raguel, came down from her upper room. And this Tobias is Tobit's son, and you know this, they're talking about Levirate marriage in the Old Testament, where the husband dies, and then the near relative uh, takes the woman as the wife. And so Tobias is said to be here, the, the near relative, or the son. So Tobias now gives some instructions to his son. That same day, Tobit remembered the money, remember, that he had left in trust with Gabriel at Raj's in Media. And he said to him, Now I have asked for death. Why do I not call my son Tobias and explain to him about the money before I die? So uh, he does and says, you know, get this money and give me a pop proper burial and that kind of thing. Uh, revere the Lord. And he, and he gives him some instructions here, some very pious, uh, practical instructions. Revere the Lord all your days, refuse to sin, trespass. Goes through a long list of things here of, uh, advice for a son, like you might find, you know, in Proverbs, advice to a man, to a young man, same kind of thing. Uh, just goes on. Don't keep over until the next day, the wage of those who work, you know, and so forth. So these are often looked upon as very, you know, they were looked upon as very good things, very good advice or very good things that people, good ways to conduct yourself, godly ways to conduct yourselves. Uh, you know, and so forth. These are, these are the things that a godly Jew should do, and then ultimately a godly Christian. 
So we here pick up about the money left in trust with Gabrielle. Now, my son, let me explain to you that I left 10 talents of silver in trust with Gabrielle, son of Gabrius, at the Rages in Media. And so he wants him to go there and get that. And his son, you know, answers this angel after we see the angel Raphael here and says, I'll do it. Uh, but, you know, how can I obtain this money? And, you know, I don't know this guy and so forth. What do I do? And I don't know the roads to get there. You know, I don't, I don't even know the roads, how to get there. And his father says, well, listen, find yourself a trustworthy man to go with you. And we'll pay him wages until you return, but get that money back from Gabriel, you know, before I die. So Tobias goes out and he found the angel Raphael standing in front of him. And he didn't perceive that it was an angel of God. Tobias said to him, uh, where do you come from, young man? So this was Raphael. He says, from your kindred, the Israelites. This is a bit, this is kind of a fib, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> the angel is not from the kindred of the Israelites. Uh, he said, I have come here to work. <laughs> not really. Then Tobias said to him, well, do you know the way to media? Well, yes. He said, I've been there many times. I'm acquainted with it. Know all the roads. I've often traveled to media <laughs> and would stay with our kinsman, Gabia, who lives in the rages of media. Now, I don't, you know, we don't really find out that that's the case in the book. I, anyway, seems like he's telling a few fibs there, but uh, verse uh, chapter five, verse nine. So Tobias went in to tell his father, Tobit, you know, and said, listen, I've got this man. And he's one of our own Israelite kindred. And Tobit says, well, call this guy in and uh, I mean, learn about his family. And, you know, is he trustworthy? And so Tobias brings him in and Tobit asks him, you know, you know, who is, who are you? And so forth. And, and the young man said, this is Raphael, take courage. Time is near for God to heal you. He says, God's going to heal you. Tobit said to him, my son, Tobias wishes to go to media. Can you accompany him and guide him? I'll pay your wages, brother. He said, yeah, I'll go with him. I know the roads. I've gone to media. I've crossed all his plains, the mere the mountains. I know it all. So Tobit says to him, brother, what family are you and from what tribe? <laughs> uh, he replied, I'm Azariah. My name is Azariah, he says, the son of the great Hananiah, one of your relatives. And Tobit said, oh, well, wonderful. You know, uh, that's great. I know Hananiah and I know these people. You're, you're one of our kindred. That's great. Good stock, he says. <laughs> so... Uh, the angel kind of gives him a little story there. And he, and Tobit goes into some discussion here. You know, I'll give you some money and give you day's wages and so forth. He calls his son in, you know, prepare the supplies, get ready for the journey. So Tobit kisses his father goodbye. His mother weeps and so forth. And why are you sending my son away? And so forth like that. And uh, so uh, she finally stopped weeping. Now we see pick up the journey uh, to Rages to get this, retrieve this money. So the young man went out and the angel went with him. That is Tobias went out, angel. The dog came out with him, went along. So they both journeyed along. And when they first night, they overtook them and they camped by the Tigris River. Remember the Tigris and Euphrates, the two great rivers of Mesopotamia. 
when the young man, some of the geography here is not exactly right, matter of fact, but I won't go into those particular errors here. When the young man went down to wash his feet in the Tigris River, suddenly a large fish leaped up from the water and tried to swallow the young man's foot. And he cried out. But the angel said to the young man, catch hold of the fish and hang on to it. So the young man grasped the fish, threw it on the land. The angel said to him, cut open the fish and take out its gall, heart and liver. Keep them with you, but throw away the intestines for its gall, heart and liver are useful as medicines. So after cutting open the fish, the young man gathered together the gall, the heart and the liver, and he roasted it and ate some of the fish and kept some to be salted. They continued on their way to media. When the young man questioned the angel and said to him, Brother Azariah, what medicinal value is the fish's heart and liver in the gall? And he cried, as for the fish's heart and liver, you must burn them to make a smoke in the presence of the man or woman afflicted by a demon or evil spirit, and that every affliction will flee away and never remain with that person any longer. And as for gall, appoint, uh, anoint a person's eyes where white films have appeared on them, blow them, blow upon them, and upon the white films, the eyes will be healed. So this is a bunch of superstitious nonsense, but here it is, you know. Uh, and some of these cures were tried later on, certainly, because they're in the Apocrypha here. So Raphael's instructions. When uh, he entered media and already was approaching Ecbatana, Raphael said to the young man, Brother Tobias, we must stay this night in the home of Raguel. He is our, your relative and has a daughter named Sarah. He has no male heir and no daughter except Sarah. And you, as next of kin to her, have before all other men a hereditary claim on her. Also, it's right that you inherit her father's possessions. Moreover, the girl is sensible, brave, and very beautiful, and her father's a good man. Let's continue. You have every right to marry her and so forth. So listen to her, you know, brother and I'll speak to the father about the girl and so forth and kind of arrange this marriage and so forth. Well, Tobias uh, answers Raphael, brother Azariah, I've heard that she has already been married to seven husbands and they've died in the bridal chamber. You know, man, you know, I don't know if I really want to be number eight here, he's saying. On the night when they went into her, they, could, they would die. I have heard people say that it was a demon that killed them. It does not harm her, but it kills anyone who desires to approach her. So now, uh, since I am the only son my father has, I'm afraid that I may die and bring my father and mother's life down to the grave, grieving for me. And they have no other son to bury them. But Raphael says, <clears throat> don't worry about that. When you're in the bridal chamber, take some fish's liver, take some of the fish's liver and heart and put them on the embers of the incense. <clears throat> An odor will be given off and the demon will smell it and flee, and he'll never return anymore. So they arrive, uh, Ra uh, uh, the angel, Raphael, and Tobias. They arrive uh, <clears throat> at the home of Raguel when they enter Ecbatana. And uh, so he goes to the house of Raguel. He greets them, said to his wife, Edna, how much the young man resembles my kinsman Tobit. You know, he looks at this young man with, <clears throat> says, well, he looks like Tobit, you know. And Tobit says, you know, he's my father. You know, obviously I resemble him. So, uh, so uh, we have, now we have the marriage of Tobias and Sarah. Um, 
Tobias said to Raphael, brother, as I asked Raguel to give me my kinsman, Sarah. Raguel heard it and said, let eat, drink, and be married tonight, for no one except you, brother, has the right to marry my daughter. So Raguel eventually says, uh, you know, I'll do it. She is given to you in accordance with the decree in the book of Moses about Levite marriage, and it's been decreed from heaven that she should be given to you. Take your kinswoman. From now on, you are her brother, and she is your sister. So Raguel summons his daughter, Sarah, and she meets her new husband for the first time. <laughs> when she came to him, uh, he took her by the hand and gave her to Tobias, saying, take her to be your wife in accordance with the law and decree of Moses. And so he writes out, uh, Raguel writes out a copy of marriage contract according to the law of Moses. So when they'd finished eating, they retired. The young man brought her to the bedroom. Then Tobias remembered the words of Raphael. He took the fish's liver, heart, out of the bag, and he put them on the embers. The odor of the fish so repelled the demon, he fled the remotest part of Egypt. But Raphael followed him and at once bound him there hand and foot. Okay. Well, when the parents had gone out and shut the door, Tobias got out of bed and said to Sarah's sister, get up and let us pray and implore our Lord that he grant us mercy and safety. So uh, they prayed and uh, before their marriage here, consummating the marriage. I'll talk about that a little later here. Um, he got up and uh, began to pray and he has this prayer to God and so forth. But Raguel rose and called the servants to him and, and they went out and dug a grave because he thought, well, this guy's going to die just like the rest of them. It's possible he'll die. So we'll become an object of ridicule and derision. So let's just dig a grave and put him in it <laughs> before anyone finds out she's had another husband who died and, you know, we won't get any more reproach. So, they that's what they did well they have this uh long wedding feast uh 14 days uh wedding feast uh the money is recovered when tobias called raphael and said to him brother azariah take four servants and two camels with you and travel to rajas uh, go to the home of gabiel give him the bond give him the money and then bring him to you to bring with you, uh, with you to the wedding celebration. Um, so Tobias uh, calls the angel and says, you know, uh, go go home, take the money that that he's got, he's got the money back, and uh, Tobit's money, and uh, bring him to the wedding celebration. Uh, Raphael gave him the bond and informed him that Tobias's son, uh, Tobit's son Tobias had married and was inviting him to the wedding celebration. So Gabriel got up and counted out to him the money bags with their seals intact. I kind of left out a little, little thing there. So they're, they're in the home of Raguel, but uh, Tobias says, go to this other guy's house, Gabriel. I'm sure I didn't make that clear. Uh, we're, in the, we're in the home. You know, he's in the home of his father-in-law now, but he says, uh, go to this guy, Gabriel, that my father gave the money, get the money from him and then bring it and invite him to the wedding celebration. So they do go. Raphael goes, he gets the money from Gabriel and they load them on the camel. So it must've been, you know, a good bit of money here, talents and talents. So, uh, 
there at the wedding celebration and so forth. So back home, uh, day by day, Tobias kept counting how many days, to, uh, Tobit kept counting how many days Tobias would need for going and for returning, again to worry. Um, his wife begins to worry and gets upset. Uh, and he says, don't grieve for him, my dear, he'll soon be here. And she answered, be quiet yourself, stop trying to deceive me. And the, they have this argument, you know, about uh, Tobias and so forth. Well, then Tobias and Sarah start home. After the 14 days have ended, Tobias says, listen, I got to go back to my father and I want to take my wife back. And Ragiel says, okay, go ahead, take Tobias, uh, take your wife, Sarah, and half of all my property, male and female slave, oxen and sheep, donkeys and camels. So he's, you know, a rich man here already and go back to your father. Well, they come to uh, Kasserin, which is the opposite Nineveh. Raphael says, you're aware of how we left your father. Let us run ahead of your wife, prepare the house while they still are on the way. As they went on together, Raphael said to him, have the gall ready. So Raphael says to Tobias before he approaches his father, I know his eyes will be open, smear the gall of the fish on his eyes. The medicine will make his white film shrink, peel it from his eyes and your father will heal, be healed. So he does, Tobias comes, he applies the medicine to his eyes uh, and both of his hands, with his hands, he peels off the white film and Tobias saw his son through his arms around and wept, said, I see my son, the light of my eyes. <clears throat> so Tobit is rejoicing, praising God. He went out to meet his daughter-in-law at the gates of Nineveh. And at that day, you know, there was great rejoicing among all the Jews who were in Nineveh. Well, Raphael's wages, when the wedding celebrations were ended, Tobit called his son Tobias and said, my son, you've got to pay this man, Azariah, who's really the angel of Raphael, his wages, give him a bonus. And he says, well, how much shall I pay him? You know, it would be, uh, it would do no harm to give him half the possessions brought back with me for he has led me safely, you know, and all that. I, I should give him half of what he, what I brought back. How much should I give him? And he said, he deserves my child to receive half of all he brought back. So they call him in. Raphael calls two of them private and says, bless God and acknowledge him in the presence of all living for the good things he has done. And he has some things here. And notice this, prayer with fasting is good, but better than both is almsgiving with righteousness. Now, this is a, a major thing uh, in the Catholic Church as it develops and almsgiving. A little with righteousness is better than wealth with wrongdoing. It's better to give alms than to lay up gold. For almsgiving saves from death and purges away every sin. Now, there's an important point. You know, if you put the money in the box, then that can purge sins, especially of people in purgatory. And, uh, you know, if you give alms to the church, then they can get out of purgatory faster because it can purge their sin that they're in purgatory for. And everybody's in purgatory except saints. So this is an important verse for Catholic doctrine about purgatory and things like that, about works, almsgiving. Well, Raphael discloses identity. I will now declare the whole truth to you. Uh, so now when you and Sarah prayed, 
It was I who brought and read the record of your prayer before the glory of God. I am Raphael, one of the seven angels who stands ready and enter before the glory of the Lord. So in the Jewish literature, he's one of the seven archangels. Uh, then the two of them, Tobias and Tobit, were shaken. They fell down, frayed, uh, and so forth. And he says, uh, uh, he says, uh, you know, don't, 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 uh, don't be afraid. Uh, don't be afraid, Raphael says. Although you were watching me, I really did not eat or drink anything, but what you saw was a vision. So I guess the idea is angels can't really eat or drink. So you just saw something that appeared to be a vision of me eating and drinking, but it really wasn't me. See, I'm ascending to him who sent me. Write down these things and have him hap that have happened to you. And he ascended and they stood up and could see him no more. And then Tobit has this thanksgiving to God, a very long, you know, good thing, he says. Lots of good stuff he says here about God and so forth. So Tobit died in peace when he was 112 years old, was buried with great honor in Nineveh. He was 60 year, 62 years old when he lost his eyesight. And after regaining uh, it, he lived in prosperity, giving alms and continually blessing God and acknowledging God's majesty. Well, it's, it's an interesting story, not a historical story, but it furnishes a glimpse of Jewish piety, especially in the second century BC. Uh, there's emphasis on good works, almsgiving. Um, Tobit says uh, in chapter four, verse 10, uh, I don't think I read uh, 410 uh, that I remember. Let's see if I did or not. I don't think I did. He says, uh, for almsgiving delivers from death and keeps you from going into darkness and so forth. And we saw that. Uh, and we saw especially 12, you know, uh, prayer and fasting is good, but better than both is thanksgiving, almsgiving with righteousness. A little with righteousness is better than wealth with wrongdoing. It's better to give alms than to lay up gold. For almsgiving saves from death and purges away every sin. So that's a very important verse for Roman Catholics. All right. I'm sorry I've gone over here. I just think it's an interesting story. Let me stop this share here and we will stop there for tonight and we will not spend as long talking about anything else, but we'll briefly talk about two other uh, stories in the Apocrypha and the rest of the books and then go on to the Pseudepigrapha and finish up next week, Lord willing. We should definitely. <laughs>